All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. First five books of the New Testament are books of history. And... Uh, we're looking at chapter 17. It's in our daily Bible reading. Obviously, we can't always stay with that, especially during Christmas season probably. But, but uh, I really find a Christmas message in Acts chapter 17, <laughs> believe it or not. It might be the tail end of what I say today, but I see it here very clearly. The older I get, and let me just say this, I know I, I don't like long introductions. But the older I get, the more I understand that it's not my responsibility to give you a great sermon or to, or to come up with some clever idea that I want to, to write down and share with you as if I were writing a book or anything like that. The older I get, the more I realize that my responsibility is to make sure that we get into God's Word and we understand what is written here. So beginning in chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, they are Paul, Silas, and Timothy on a missionary journey. Luke, the author of this book, had just been with them, and he stayed at Philippi, where they just came from. He stayed at Philippi, while Paul and Silas and Timothy continued on their journey. Paul and Silas and Timothy are on the interstate highway of that day. There were two of them in the Roman Empire. One was called the Appian Way and one was called the Ignatian Way. And they are on the Ignatian Way, which runs east and west through the Roman Empire. And the reason they're no doubt on that highway is so that they can get to cities where they can share the gospel and they can do it quickly. So they go through these two towns and they come to the city of Thessalonica, which was the capital of Macedonia. And so it was a very prosperous city. It was a wealthy city. There were about 200,000 people who lived there. And no doubt Paul was anxious to get the gospel to Thessalonica. They had been in Europe just for a short period of time. You'll remember that Luke joined them in the city of Troas on the other side of the sea. And that's where, that's where Paul had his Macedonian vision of a man who said, come over and help us. And you'll remember that they sailed then across the agency to the, um, uh, to, uh, the city of Philippi. The Bible says in chapter 17, verse 1, that when they came to the city of Thessalonica, they went into a synagogue of the Jews. I find it interesting, and if you read through the book of Acts, you'll discover that the Apostle Paul is always looking for a synagogue of the Jews. Remember, the Apostle Paul was a Jewish person who became a Christian after a long period in his life, it seemed, where he was antagonistic to Christianity. But he finally saw the light. 
And after he saw the light, he began to share the gospel, and he wanted to share the gospel in the synagogues of the Jews. And as was his custom, in verse 2, he went into the synagogue, and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures. He attended three Sabbath weekend services in a row. And during those three services, he was invited to speak. He was invited to share. He was probably given the scrolls, and he was asked to share what he wanted to share from the scrolls. It's pretty much like Jesus in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes to his hometown in Nazareth. No doubt the synagogue where he grew up. Jesus became a rabbi. And in that synagogue, the Bible tells us that when he came to Nazareth, in verse 16 of Luke chapter 4, where he'd been brought up, his custom was to go into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he was given the opportunity to stand up and read the scriptures. On this particular day, he was handed the book or the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Wasn't that a setup? God had that all planned out pretty well, didn't he? And so he was handed the scroll of Isaiah, and when he opened the book, he found the place where it was written about him coming to deal with the sin problem. I like the colorful way it's described there. But back to the apostle Paul. So what does the Apostle Paul do in verse 2? He reasoned with them from the scriptures. He didn't reason with them from the daily newspaper. He didn't reason from them from the philosophies of the day. He didn't reason with them from anything else, but he took the scriptures and he reasoned with them from the scriptures. And you and I should be very concerned about that. You and I should be excited about that. You and I should say, listen, my, I, you have my attention this morning because the very same thing that the Apostle Paul did in verse 2 is what you and I need to do when we talk to people. We need to reason with them. The Bible says he did two other things, three other things really, in his proclamation of the gospel. He reasoned with them from the scriptures, which means that he invited them to talk and share and dialogue and discuss with him and probably ask them questions and, he asked, and they asked him questions. And in that reasoning with them, he explained, he interpreted, he opened up the scriptures and he demonstrated or proved that Christ now, <clears throat> I often wondered what his arguments exactly were. I love to see good reasoning ability. When I was learning to share the gospel, I ran across uh, something that R.A. Torrey had written in, in a, a book of, uh, of questions, you know, when people say, oh, I can't be saved because I got this reason and that reason and all of this, and, and uh, here's how to answer those objections and those excuses and those, question, those concerns that people have. 
But R.H.O.R.E. wrote, uh, he said, you know, he says, there are going to be a lot of people out there who don't think that they're sinners. And I thought, well, yeah, that's true. That's true. There are people who admit it, but you have to reason with them in order for them to admit it. But um, I like the way that R.A. Torrey put this. He said, you know, when you're talking to someone who doesn't believe that he's a sinner and you go to the Ten Commandments and you say, have you ever disobeyed this commandment or that commandment? And they say, no, no, I, I, I've been pretty good. I, I, I don't obey those commandments. I do everything the way I'm supposed to do it. He said, ask him one final question. The Bible says you're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Have you obeyed that commandment? And the answer, obviously, is going to be, he's just reasoned with me, and if I'm going to be honest with myself, I will have to say, no, I have not obeyed that commandment. Well, we know what the message was. It was a three-point message. And the message was, and this is important for all of us because just as Paul reasoned and explained interpreting God's word and proving it to be true, we need to do that with these three facts. Number one, that Jesus had to suffer before he did anything else. Number two, that he had to rise again from the dead. And number three, Paul says this Jesus whom I preach to you is actually the Christ of the Old Testament that we're talking about who had to do these two things. I say that to you because it's important for us anytime we share the gospel or anytime we want to stay on track with what God's word emphasizes. We need to keep in mind that Christ died for our sin and he rose again. And we will live forever because of the promise. Now, you and I need to analyze everything we read. We need to analyze everything that we, we uh, in books and everything we hear on the TV and everything that we read. And whenever there is a discussion about Christ, we need to ask ourselves the question, are they building up to the point where they're going to talk about or they're going to read about the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection? And if they never get around to doing that, you know there's a big problem. You know there's a big problem. You will remember that Jesus, in Luke chapter 24, in chapter 4, he opened the book of Isaiah, in Luke 24, he is on the road to Emmaus talking to his disciples. We're talking about everything that happened right after the crucifixion. It's three days later, and they're talking to Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is, but you remember the occasion. And Jesus said, what are you talking about? He says, are you the only person who hasn't heard what just happened three days ago? I want to remind you what Jesus did on that occasion. Jesus opened up the scriptures and beginning with Moses and the prophets, he expounded to them the things concerning himself. And he said this, 
in verse 26, Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and then enter into his glory? We live in a day and age when we want to bypass the most important thing that God has shared with us. We have a sin problem. You and I know this. We could talk about this forever. We could talk about this uh, from now till doomsday, about the sin problem that we have, and people are still going to try to brush that away, and they're going to say, well, you know, Jesus was, he was a really good guy, you know, and I really appreciate the work he did, and I appreciate the example he was, and I appreciate the fact that he was so kind, and he was so generous, and he was so gracious to everybody, practically, and he only ruffled his only got his feathers ruffled when he was talking to religious leaders who were so hard-hearted that he couldn't get through to them. But listen, you and I need to keep in mind that our sin problem is dealt with at the cross. It's not dealt with with our own achievements and our own abilities to lift ourselves up by our bootstraps. And yet we live in a world that believes that we can do that. But Jesus opened up the scriptures, and then later when he's talking to his disciples in the very same chapter, the Bible says that Jesus said that everything that was written in the book of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms, the three sections of the Old Testament, everything that was written concerning me has to happen. I often wonder, since there's so much in the Old Testament that talks about Christ, and there's so much in the Old Testament that talks about his suffering and his, his victorious reign as king. I often wonder just exactly what passages of Scripture Jesus used. I wonder what passages of Scripture the Apostle Paul used. We'll, never, we'll probably never know, but we can certainly stack them up and say... Certainly he went to Isaiah 53. Certainly he went to Psalm 22. Certainly he went to the passages of Scripture that describe the awful pain and agony that Jesus would experience in my behalf, in your behalf, in paying the penalty for sin that you and I deserve. Now the result of that is given in verse 4. And some of them were persuaded. Three groups of people. Some of them were persuaded. Some of the Jewish people in the synagogue were persuaded. And a great multitude of the devout Greeks were persuaded. These were God-fearing Greeks who would show up at the synagogue. And they were sensitive about what they knew about God. And they would worship with the, Greek, they would worship with the Jews there at the synagogue. And the Bible says not only that, but there were, not, there were many of the leading women, the prominent women of the city of Thessalonica. Maybe the higher class of Thessalonica. But these are the three groups of people who heard the Apostle Paul talking about the suffering of Christ first, the resurrection of Christ, and then Jesus is that person. He has come to save us. Song that the um, if you'll if you'll listen back in your own mind to the song that the uh, praise team uh, sang this morning, you'll notice all of this is right in that psalm. I love 
I love the way the Lord has led songwriters, hymn writers, to write hymns that are so consistent with what the scriptures teach. And are not just out there um, with some odd thought. And so these three groups of people responded and they believed. And I wish we could stop the story right there and wish we didn't have to say another word. But we've got to continue because after the success of sharing the gospel, difficulties, difficulties arise. And it all starts in verse 5 with the word but. You know, the word but in the English language is a word that tells us, now I'm about to give you a a, a contrast to what I just told you. You know, I love, uh, I love uh, a certain thing, but. And so we have a contrast here. But the Jews who were not persuaded, because no one is, you know, a lot of people are not saved, at least not the first time they hear the gospel, maybe not the second time, maybe not the third time. I don't know how many times the Apostle Paul had heard the gospel. Here he is taking Christians and he's, and he's having them killed because of their faith. And no doubt those Christians are sharing the gospel with him. I don't know how many times he had to go through that before he finally was confronted on the road to Damascus and he became a Christian. But the Jews who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace. Lewd men of a baser sort. They went and they enlisted some evil men from the marketplace and they gathered them together and they put together a mob and they set the city in an uproar and they did it with the purpose of destroying all the efforts of the Apostle Paul in the city of Thessalonica. They did several things. They attacked the house of Jason you know, I like to identify with Jason. You know, I'm not an Apostle Paul and I'm not a Silas and, and I'm certainly not a Timothy. I'm not, I'm not a spiritual giant like them, but I like to think of myself as Jason, who was a believer in the city of Thessalonica, who said to the Apostle Paul and Silas, listen, when you come to the city, come and stay at my place. I'll entertain you. I love the Lord too. So he sought to bring them out to the people. So the, so the mob sought to bring them out to the people. But when they didn't find the apostle Paul and Silas, because no doubt the believers had hidden Paul and Silas so that they would not be harmed, they took Jason and some brethren and they dragged them out of the house and they dragged them to the rulers of the city. By the way, I probably, this is, this is not really anything that you need to know unless you're a young person whose faith is constantly being threatened by the false accusations of people who don't think that the Bible is true or factual. It's interesting that Thessalonica is a city of the Roman Empire, but it was a free city. It could govern itself. And the Greek word for the city officials here, the rulers of the city, is a word that we couldn't find for years and years and years, couldn't find it for years, applying to any city of the Roman Empire. 
Then it shows up. It shows up in an archaeological discovery in the city of Thessalonica. It shows up not just once, twice, three, four, five archaeological digs in the city. And so the, all of those who want to say, oh, well, you know, this, this account isn't true because he's, he's calling the rulers by a name that we're not even familiar with. It's not even familiar in the Roman Empire. And yet, just give God enough time, give the Bible, you know, just give everything enough time, and what is secret will be revealed. And that goes for the truth of God's Word as well. It will be confirmed. It will be, it will be uh, proven. Just give it enough time. And so Jason, the three accusations, and they shouted these accusations. They took him to the rulers of the city, and they shouted these accusations. And they said, number one, these people have turned the world upside down. They've disrupted life for us. Here we are doing our own thing, living the way we please, not realizing that judgment is down the road. The Apostle Paul, when he got to Athens after here, talks about the fact that judgment is just down the road, guys. At the end of all of history, we have to stand before the Lord and be judged because of our sin. God is being very gracious to you. God is being very loving. He's being very kind and compassionate when he offers to save us from our sin. So they accused, they accused all of them of turning the world upside down. And then they accused Jason of harboring Paul and Silas. And then they had a third accusation. And this is the one that we can really appreciate in the day and age in which we live. You see, because the Bible is set in history. The Bible took place in history. And it's a history book as well as a book that gives to us the truth of God's word in the gospel of Christ. It's a history book. So when it speaks of history, it's true. And the fact of the matter is that ever since the time of the New Testament... Uh, the church has tried to share the gospel, has had to share the gospel in the midst of the mud of world empires, in the midst of the mud of politics, if you may say. And this is a political issue, as you know. And so they, they shout these accusations that they've turned the world upside down, that Jason himself has harbored these guys. And number three, all of them, all of them are acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar saying there is another king, Jesus. Well, does that change the circumstances a little bit? It makes the whole crowd of the city of Thessalonica fearful. It makes the rulers of the city of Thessalonica perk up. Because they're saying, in effect, these people are treasonous. They're defying Caesar. Caesar's the king. Caesar's the savior. Caesar's the big cheese. And they're saying there's somebody else? Well, it was very, very political. <clears throat> and I didn't plan to talk about politics today, it just happens to be in the daily Bible reading. But there's a great lesson here for us. 
And the lesson, I think, is going to be very clear in just a couple of minutes. Well, as you know, the, the city rulers, the politarchs, the city rulers took these men, interrogated them, no doubt acting out of fear, took a security bond from Jason and said, listen, you better make sure that they don't cause any uproar in this city. And to, to keep you to your word, we're taking a security bond from you. And then they let them go. The danger is not over because the Bible tells us in verse 10 that the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And after they shared the gospel at Berea, they arrived there. They went into the synagogue in verse 10, just as they did. And the neat thing about Berea is they said, these guys are more fair-minded than the people at Thessalonica were. Because the people of Thessalonica got caught up in all of this politics. And the people of Thessalonica got caught up in their own interests. But they were more fair-minded because what did they do? What did the Bereans do according to this scripture in Acts chapter 17. They were more noble. They were more fair-minded. They treated this with a great deal of, of, um, of respect. And they should be commended for it. Because they what? Because they received the word with all what? Readiness or eagerness. And they did number two. They what? Search the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. Paul, we need you to not only reason with us, explain to us, but we need you to demonstrate. So we're going to see if everything you're telling us is true, we're going to look for the proof for what you say. And the result was that many of them believed. Some of the Jews believed, some of the Greek, God-fearing Greeks believed, and once again, prominent women as well as men. But, you have another but in verse 13, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul, what did they do? They came to the city, and what did they do? The same thing they did back at Thessalonica, they stirred up the crowd. And the, and the brethren immediately sent Paul to go to the sea. Silas and Timothy remained there, and they conducted Paul, brought him to Athens with the idea that Silas and Timothy were going to come as soon as they could get to him. And in verse 16, and we'll end with this as far as the major section of Scripture is concerned. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Therefore, verse 17, I'm sorry, he what? Everybody together. He reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Now, let's close. There are two words in this passage of Scripture that really bothered me. Half the problems in the world today are because of these two words. Now, I'm being a little facetious when I say that, but I also want you to know that I'm pretty serious as well. What are the two words that I'm talking about? 
Well, in verse 4, after, the great mul- after the, a great multitude of Greeks, Jews, and prominent women joined the Apostle Paul, believed the truth of what Paul said, and became a part of the ministry of sharing the gospel. That's what that implies. It says in verse 5, but the Jews who were not persuaded became what? Envious. They became jealous in other translations. They became jealous. And then they went to the market and they hired these evil men of a baser sort and gathered a mob and set the whole city in an uproar because of their envy, because of their jealousy. Now, I don't know. I don't know about you, but that is very significant when you think about that. It doesn't say that they disagreed with what Paul said. It doesn't say that they didn't see some truth in what he shared with them. It didn't say that they had some philosophical, they had some philosophical thing that they believed that was higher than what the Apostle Paul was sharing with them. It doesn't say anything like that at all. It merely says that they only cared about their own personal concerns. They only cared about themselves. And they're concerned that Paul is drawing more people than they are. And uh, my sermon could have easily been about emotions that destroy. (laughs) Could have been, right? But we're getting close to Christmas, and I want to give you what I think is one of the best illustrations. Um, Not a story illustration, but one that comes from a a commentary. I I try not to read a lot of commentaries because I'm getting older now, and I don't have much time to do that. (laughs) But I found this in a commentary that was written 100 years ago. And I want you to think about this. Because I think this is very important. Now, it's a couple of par- it's only one big paragraph, but I think we can do this in just a, uh, just a, a minute or a couple minutes. Among the hindrances, now listen carefully because this is a hundred year old language, okay? Among the hindrances to the progress of the gospel in the world, we have often to notice the combination of the most discordant elements for the purpose of obstruction. Did you get that? Did you understand that? You got, you got, got to let your mind think about that for a second. I don't know, but maybe, maybe I'm the only one. And then he gives us some illustrations. Here's the first illustration. Pilate, he's the Roman governor. Herod is a Jewish leader. Now listen, Pilate and Herod should have hated each other's guts. Right? Pilate and Herod were made friends together when they united in crucifying the Lord of glory. Let me give you another group, another illustration. The chief priests and the Pharisees had a blind hatred for the Lord Jesus Christ and sought his death. And they had no scruples to invoke the aid of the Roman power in order to do it. And the Jews had no problem going down to the marketplace and getting these thugs 
and these men that would just hang around down there, just causing trouble, they had no problem aligning, the, aligning themselves or getting themselves into an agreement with them to deal with Christianity. Why do I bring that to your attention? Well, number one, the, the Luke understood exactly why, what motivated them. It was not because they set some higher moral standard than when the Apostle Paul. And this really is interesting because the guy, the, the pastor who wrote this sermon submitted it and it became, this paragraph became the head sermon for a bunch of sermons that were written as secondary or supplementary to what he says. And this is all he says. And this is all he says. He says, so in politics, men of the most opposite principles often combine to crush the object of their common dislike. In religion, too, we see extreme parties joining hands to discomfort a third party to which they are equally opposed. Now, what I like is what he says next, and this is what you and I need to take with us. In all such combinations, there is want of uprightness and truth. There is a culpable indifference to the nature of the weapons which men use to compass their own end. There is a clear evidence that it is not the cause of righteousness and of God's truth that men are seeking to promote, but some end of their own. When these combinations take place to oppose the progress of Christian truth, though they may be may be formidable for a time, they carry with them the evidences that they are from beneath and will not prevail. I'm going to close with what he says. But the thing that I want you to keep in mind is, you know, when you read this passage of Scripture, it's easy to take sides now. See, it's so easy to take sides because of how Luke deals with the character behind the actions. The love of the Apostle Paul, the gracious spirit, and, and we know that from how he writes to the Thessalonians in the two books he writes to them a couple months later. And the, and the selfishness and the jealousy and the envy of his opponents. Well, let me finish this. Let me finish this because I think this will encourage all of us. The church of God need not be afraid of them. The Jews of Thessalonica combined with the heathen rabble of their town under a pretense of loyalty to Caesar to silence Paul and Silas. When they fled, they pursued them to Berea and drove them thence onward to Athens and Corinth. But the breath intended to extinguish the flame did not make it made did but make it blaze up from place to place. And here's the final comments. So will it be with every conspiracy to put out the light of Christ. Philosophy, sensuality, this is written a hundred years ago. Science and lawlessness, atheism and superstition may join hands and combine to remove the candlestick of God's church. It will but shed its light brighter and wider in the places where God wills it to shine 
until at last the whole earth shall be filled with the knowledge of God's glory as the waters cover the sea. Amen. In the light of Christmas, what do we do at Christmas time? It's all about light. Around the world, it's all about light. And churches will be all around the world We'll be sharing the light of Christ at Christmas time. I have one final thought I just want to share with you, and that is this. The light of the Roman Empire has gone out. It went out hundreds of years ago. But the light of Christ is circling the globe even today. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you that you're the light of the world. Father, help us to be faithful to you as a church. We know a lot doesn't happen and things don't change because we're not faithful to you in sharing the light of the gospel. Help us to do that. Help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.